the Seattle Seahawks might actually be good. After a decisive win over the Chargers in Los Angeles, Seattle finds themselves at 4-3 and three and alone in first place in the NFC West. Mike and I break down what this means for the team going forward. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with Pro Football Focus's 14th ranked podcast producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. If Richard Sherman was like the 79th ranked corner in 2014 or whatever, <laughs> then I'm doing pretty damn well. How are you, man? <laughs> yeah, you remember when they would do it? Like, like Earl Thomas, I, the I, 65th I, rated safety <laughs> in the National Football yeah. League. Yeah, you know, uh, it would be, I think it was Sunday night because Chris Collinsworth has the ownership stake in PFF, right? And so I remember they put up the position ranks by PFF and you're right. Seattle had an early game. It was like the second or third game of the season. <laughs> they have Richard Sherman, who's coming off like three consecutive first team, all pro seasons. And it's like 79th ranked cornerback. And I'm like, all right, y'all got to throw this out. You got to do it like DVOA where you don't even post it publicly until like week eight. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of drawing dastardly conclusions off of small sample sizes so i mean maybe that's a little foreshadowing of what's ahead in this episode but you know we're, we're seven weeks in jackson and the seahawks are in first place in the nfc west so we have grown the sample a little bit and things are starting to look pretty interesting they are i mean dude the seahawks legitimately look awesome now i mean like i'm not saying that they're in the same class as the bills or the eagles or the chiefs what i'm saying is like They've looked really good over the last month of football. Um, and the fact that they're in first place seems a lot less fluky than it would have if you told me that at the beginning of the season. Totally. And you just mentioned DVOA. The Seahawks are currently seventh in the NFL in DVOA. They're Unreal. third in offense, Unreal. 19th in defense, 20th in special teams, which is hilarious because the defense has looked atrocious for a good chunk of the season. Obviously, the last two weeks have been a striking departure from that. It feels like every single week the Seahawks pull off the most moronic feat imaginable trying to get off or cover a punt. So, like, I don't know. It feels like the fact that they're still at seventh after all of this shitassery is a great sign, right? Like the uh, the things that are the Michael, things that yeah. are raising the tides Absolutely. are so powerful to overcome everything else. I would be willing to bet that no punter in history has ever fumbled in consecutive games the way that Michael Dixon did <laughs> in those two games uh, in a row. I think it was, what was this, the Saints and the and the Cardinals. But like, yeah, even even with all that stuff, you know, it's it's coming together. The last two games have been fairly decisive where – for the entirety of the fourth quarter, the game hasn't really been in doubt. And the defense, since you mentioned it, it's only allowed 24 points in that stretch. And the other nine can be uh, attributed to a, uh, you know, the fumble, the punt fumble recovering the end zone and a safety. You know, other than that, the Cardinals, and while their offense isn't ripping the way that uh, some folks may have anticipated, are not a bad offensive team. And they held them to three points. And the Chargers, also underperforming a little bit, still loaded, 
still been moving the ball well this season. I mean, yeah, they got three touchdowns, but one didn't count. Really, it was at the end. Like, who cares? It could have been nullified with a uh, with an interception in the end zone had uh, Mosu not jumped off sides. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, what you're looking at is a team that is not only playing well from the get-go on defense, but protecting big leads, which has become increasingly difficult to do in the NFL. I mean, it's it's kind of like if you watch Red Zone – you get to the witching hour when all the games are in the fourth quarter, and it's almost like the scores don't matter in 70% of the games. It's like playing NFL Blitz, where all of a sudden everything starts to break in favor of the team that's trailing. And before you know it, you know, the the Ravens 26-point lead over the Dolphins is a five-point loss. And, you know, there's been a bunch of that this year. And I don't know about you, but I was kind of like intellectually I was expecting – that happened both the Cardinals and the Chargers game. Like, okay, at some point, Chargers are going to start stringing together some drives. Cardinals are going to start stringing together some possessions, scoring some points, and and really making the anuses pucker. Is it anuses or ain't I? What's what's plural? If you know, email the show cigarthoughts at gmail. Cigarthoughtsnfl at gmail.com. <laughs> Anus or ain't I? <laughs> but honestly, like that never happened because like in my heart. It didn't, it, it didn't feel like it was going to happen. You know what I mean? Like you're watching the game, you're understanding the game flow, you're seeing how the defense is performing. And at no point in either of the last two games did I feel like Seattle's fourth quarter lead was ever really in jeopardy. Right. And in both of the games, well, let's start with the Cardinals and we can move on to uh, the Chargers. But sure, the Cardinals scored their only three offensive points of the day on their first drive of the day. And it was coming off of a week where they got absolutely bludgeoned by Taysom Hill running like roughshod all over them. And you come in and Kyler Murray rips off a crazy like 45-yard explosive run on the first set of downs. And you're just like, okay, here we go again. And then they get down to the red zone. They clamp up, force an incompletion, get off only allowing three. And then the rest of the game, it was just domination. And then against the Chargers, you know, there was basically – Three consecutive turnovers, one of which on downs to open the game, right? Uh, you Gino threw that uh, that pick, and then they got off in four plays. They shut down the run on fourth and one, and then uh, Ryan Neal interception, and then Daryl Taylor strip sack and recovery. And then so they go up 17 nothing, and then they allow two consecutive touchdown drives, the second of which was a result of, uh, of D. Eskridge's fumble, I believe. And so right, it was field. sort of... And so, yeah, exactly. Short field. And so you're starting to, as you said, starting to pucker a little bit. It's like, oh God, here we go. The fireworks are coming. We're getting another one of those like 45, 42 uh, Detroit Lions games. But then it just kind of consolidated the defense. Yeah. Everything settled after that. Yeah. There was no panic in these guys. There was no panic. The, The changes that Pete Carroll had spoken to, about you know the defensive lineman one gapping rather than reading and reacting, uh, it it has clearly helped against the run. You know the the defense has since kind they've of... done that, they have nine sacks in the last two games. They were barely breathing on quarterbacks in the first five games of the season, and all of a sudden, you know they're up there with the league leaders in terms of pressures over the last few games. 
Uchenna Nwosu, I don't know if you saw that. You know Uchenna Nwosu leads the NFL in quarterback pressures this year? Yep. That's he, crazy. He's got 31, and he got Miles Garrett and <laughs> Micah amazing. Parsons right behind him. That's nuts. You want a game yes. record. We've been talking about you want blue-chip talent on the defensive line. They got that with a guy that they're paying, what, like 8 to $10 million a year or something? Totally, totally. You know, and That's like a bargain bin signing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've heard... Both KJ Wright and Bruce Irvin, who are venerated veterans of Pete Carroll defenses, talking to the press in the last couple of weeks and saying, look, the issue isn't talent on defense. The issue is communication. You got a bunch of guys that just aren't sure exactly what they're supposed to be doing or what the guys around them are going to be doing on a given play. And it's just so smart to simplify that. And I think it's helped by the fact that you're getting such good play from your secondary, right? Like, Early in the season, you just saw a lot of room between receivers and the guys who were supposed to be covering them. It kind of reminds me of the Vikings game last year where Kirk Cousins was just standing back there and just throwing to wide open dudes in these soft spots in the coverage. And it, it took last year's team two months to figure that out. It happened so much faster this year. And I think it's because there's just more speed. And now that speed isn't being indecisive. That speed is seeing where they need to go understanding their reads and getting there really quickly. And it is putting a lot of pressure on opposing offenses. Yeah. I mean, that half second of reading and reacting, that is the difference between an incompletion and an explosive gain through the air. You know, it, it absolutely is. And it's also the other, the other thing that's happening is, and, and I think there is a high degree of correlation with putting Ryan Neal in the starting lineup. Ryan Neal broke up four passes in the game uh, on Sunday. That's the second most of any player in the NFL this season. And he was emptying and... his guts from both ends that morning. <laughs> oh, is that right? I didn't even know that. Yeah, he was, I think he had the IV and he was so sick that morning. He oh comes my out gosh. As the game of his life. I think he was like the, the second highest rated player in the league by PFF. <laughs> See, that's amazing. So as man. we've always said, PFF is, is great and correct. Yeah. I mean, you've got, You've got all of a sudden these guys who were afterthoughts as far as this season goes in Ryan Neal and Tariq Woolen and Uchenna Unwosu, who have been the three best players on this defense over the last few weeks. And all of a sudden you're looking at a team where you can win without the offense having to score 40. And it takes so much pressure off of Geno. And we should talk about Geno Smith in this game because this is the second consecutive uh game that he's had where the stats don't jump off the page but when you watch it you understand that you are watching a quarterback who is absolutely in control of the game and at no point was that more apparent to me than after that whole weird false start oh man on third down at the middle of the field where he's so hot that the ref is chirping at him the ref that was standing next to Pete Carroll started to yell at Gino and you see Carroll come out there and just center Gino right there and just let him know, hey, go get it. I mean, they had to burn a timeout because Gino wouldn't stop yapping after that play. Let the entire play clock run down after the ball was reset because of it. And I think Gino had a good point, but Gino Smith came into this league with a reputation of kind of being, you know, a hothead. I mean, he got his jaw broken by a teammate over a gambling debt in New York. This is an inflection point where you could see Smith kind of lose it and get rattled. Instead, he drops back. The pocket is collapsing on him. I mean, the Chargers brought pressure on this play. He steps up, 
and fucking whistles one. I mean, I, that might be the hardest pass he's thrown all season to a leaping Tyler Lockett to keep the chains moving. They end up scoring on the drive. I mean, that to me was as impressive as anything he's done all season. And the context of that is so important. You said, you know, there was the weird false start call that should have been an offsides on third and five, which either gets you automatically to third and inches or a first down. I think it ended up third and 11, so it wouldn't third, third and inches. But was this was this the first drive of the second half or was this at the, the I drive? I think the end so. Of so anyways, this is an important drive, right? You got to they think they got off the field to start the half and they need to get points. And Gino just fucking whistles it in there and he starts talking shit after it was a beautiful yes, moment. He did. But that moment, that moment, that moment between uh, Pete and Gino reminded me of 2019 season. Remember when the Ravens were in town and there was oh a critical God. fourth and short and Lamar One Jackson goes off to the sidelines. Totally. And he goes up to John Harbaugh and John Harbaugh is like, Lamar, Lamar, what do you want to do? And he's like, I want to go for it. He's like, all right, we're going for it. It was like one of those moments where it was like, yes. it was an unspoken moment where Pete was like, you've got this. And Gino was like, fuck yeah, I do. And he just slung that shit. Oh, it was beautiful. A beautiful. Do you remember moment. how jealous yes. you felt watching that? Yes. Right. And just knowing that Pete and Russ no longer had that. Right. Like, dude, do you know how jealous we the rest of the much... NFC West is looking at that moment? Right. Yes. Now? Yes. Could you yes. imagine Kyle Shanahan doing that to Jimmy Garoppolo? No way. Shanahan's got the brim low and the freaking play call sheet up in front of his face. Zero vibes. You could kind of see it with McVay, but they're rattled as hell right now. The Cardinals are a freaking mess. I mean, I'm telling you, man, I, I do think the Seahawks are the best of a bad situation in the NFC West right now, but I also think they're a pretty good football team. Yeah, I, I think that like at this point, their their offense has obviously been really good at scoring points, which is important, but also really good at making it happen when the defense uh or circumstance takes away a strength. Like you said last week, you know, the Cardinals game plan was to take DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett out of the game and they effectively did. And so what did they do? They figured out how to move the ball up and down the field using tight ends, using the running game. They used the the other weapons at Geno's disposal to get that done. And in this game, Gino, uh, in this game, DK Metcalf went out with that injury in the first half, which was a real bummer. But the Seahawks still managed to put up 20 points in a bunch of yards. They were they were moving the ball up and down the field without their best weapon. And it just speaks to the multiplicity of the weapons, the coaching staff, Geno's ability to execute that game plan. It's just really encouraging stuff all around. It It is. And the thing about it is it seems sustainable. You know, after that Lions win, I was thrilled about it, had a blast watching it. That didn't feel repeatable to me. You know, where you can just give up six touchdowns in a game and expect to win. And obviously, that's an outlier. But all season, up to that point, really up until the Cardinals game, there was no confidence that the defense is going to be able to hold any lead that you give them. And now, it really does feel that way. It feels more cohesive, both on defense and on offense. I mean, I watched that whole game thinking back to a lot of the stuff that Steven Ruiz was saying about... Geno Smith's development in terms of being in the pocket and staying within the offense. And Shane Waldron has just got to be giddy seeing that everything, because it's one thing to be able to draw up all of these plays, but 
you're counting on a lot of things going right. And more than anything, you're counting on the quarterback to keep his cool in the middle of the storm to make this stuff happen. You can't really draw up stuff for a quarterback bailing after his first read and improvising. You know, that then you're you're counting on guys to just be coached up on and know what to do. But when you can really lay out the chess moves and then see the players go out and execute them, it just gives you so much more freedom and confidence to go further and further into the playbook. And what you're seeing is them starting to set things up with motion and play calls early in the game that are creating opportunities for big plays late in the game. Like it's not an accident that Ken Walker had so much room to run on that long touchdown towards the end of the game that kind of sealed it. You know, they had been setting that up all game long and then boom, you hit them with a little trap play to the right. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not one of those guys that's going to say every running back is scoring on that play. I mean, Ken Walker ran faster with the ball than any player has in the NFL all season on that. I mean, he absolutely vaporized Kenneth Murray's pursuit angle on that play. But he had a ton of room to run because the execution was so, so good. And then when you combine game planning, execution, and then really top-tier otherworldly talent from your playmakers, that's when you start to be pretty scary as an offense. Yeah, and I mean quarterback quarterback is like a psychological torture chamber like being thrown into this situation after you know Gino started a few games last year but it was for the most part a pretty difficult circumstance going against the Steelers defense and then the Saints defense in the rain and then you know got things rolling against the Jags but coming into this season you know obviously you felt comfortable within the system a lot of stuff can transpire to ruin the plan. You know, you feel comfortable within the system with your weapons. Things can go poorly. Denver in week one, Denver is, I would say, comfortably an elite defense of the NFL this season. Would you agree? Absolutely. And Top Gino five. fucking stuck 14. I think he put 17 up in the first half against them. The part he about did. this offense is every single game except for the Niners game, which again, elite defense at the, at the peak of its powers earlier this season before uh, a lot of the injuries hit. The Seahawks and have been putting really up, shitty weather and really shitty weather. Totally. But the Seahawks have been putting up points early. I know that Pete and Bruce love to wax poetic about, can you win the game in the first quarter? No. Can you win the game in second? No. Third? No. Fourth? Yes. Woohoo. The Seahawks are putting up points in the first quarter in a way that looks sustainable in a way that looks it, like it can be extrapolated down the line against good defenses against defenses that are playing at the peak of their abilities. And it's just weird to watch. It's weird to watch them come out of the gate and score a touchdown on their opening drive of the season. And then against the saints and against the Falcons, even though they lost both of those games, they couldn't stop the run to save their lives in both those games. And that's a really difficult way to win football games, but they were still, their offense was still looking exceptional they look for the prepared. most part they look prepared totally and if the defensive resurgence of the last couple of weeks is anything close to as real as it appears to be then even if they fall off a little bit that's a pretty solid formula to win football games with that offense yeah and you know one of my frustrations with the Pete Carroll philosophy of keep the game close and and win at the end is that you're not giving yourself much margin for error and having a margin for error is so important because you know what makes winning in the fourth quarter easier? 
having a two score lead. That's the part about this that's really interesting is that in the wins that we've seen Gino commandeer, there hasn't been like a fourth quarter comeback. We haven't seen them in that situation. The only times that he's been in that situation were in that Pittsburgh and in that uh, Saints game last year and as well as the, the Rams game that he replaced Russell in after the injury. And it's like he came so close in some of those games. You know, in that uh, in that Pittsburgh game, he took them right down the field. And uh, I think they went mm -hmm. into overtime because he led a, a field goal drive to tie it up at the last second. Absolutely. He was knocking on the door in the three losses. I mean, I know the Rams loss wasn't attributed to him because he came in. They were already losing. But he was the quarterback at the end of three losses in his four games last year. And all three of them, they could have won. And it was one play late. And and that speaks to the fact that they had no margin for error for a bad bounce or for not picking up uh, a rusher, a blindside rusher, or for having a dropped pass or a mistake on Geno's part. Now, that can happen. I mean, how many drives have we seen end with third down sacks that Seattle has given up this year? A lot, like a lot, a lot. And you know what? They're still scoring a shit ton of points. They're still moving the ball because they have that margin for error that hasn't existed in years. Totally. And the there were a few, I mean, he did throw the one pick and there were a couple of other very interceptable passes uh, in that game. The one that the attempted throw away was, was the one where you're just kind of looking on like, Oh Jesus, Gino. But, oh, yeah. but the one that he threw that uh, Asante Samuel Jr. Almost, uh, almost picked off. I look at that throw and then the little stick that got tipped up as a quarterback who is just so comfortable and in his bag that he's just going to fucking sling it. I can hit that out. I don't give a shit that that cornerback's right there looking. You mm -hmm. know, I can hit this because I've been hitting these digs all damn day. I've been hitting these posts. I've been hitting these seam balls. I've looked great doing it. So you know what? I feel confident that I can execute this. And I mean, it didn't burn them. I hope it doesn't burn them in the future. But I mean, for the most part, he's executing at a very very high level and we're seeing a bunch of young guys play really well like that's the most encouraging thing is this isn't the old guard where you know last couple of years it's kind of felt like you better hurry up and win with these guys because pretty soon you're gonna have to turn this whole thing over now you've got cornerstone players i mean i know we kind of touched on it a couple weeks ago but if you were to redraft this year's nfl draft Charles Cross, top 10 pick. Abe Lucas, first round pick. Ken Walker, absolutely justifying his draft position. Uh, you know, he's he's going to come out of this with the Brees Hall injury as the most valuable young running back in the league, I believe. more than He's you know, the Javante favorite got for hurt. offensive rookie of the year, the betting favorite right now, which makes sense. I know. It absolutely makes sense. I mean, the guy has led the NFL in rushing since Rashad Penny went down. He's averaging seven yards a carry, and he's scoring touchdowns. Like we talked about last week, yes, the offense is clicking, and they're blocking well, and they're scheming well, but I'm not the type, and I know you're not either, to penalize good players for being in good situations. You still have to be able to make it happen, and he's just getting yards that other people aren't. He's... I keep waiting for the first guy that gets to Kenneth Walker to bring him down. It just does not happen. So he's been amazing. Tariq Woolen. I mean, Tariq Woolen might be a top 10 pick if you're redoing it. You know what I mean? Kobe Bryant's going early day two at this point. Like, I mean, it is happening fast with these guys. We've gone through like three different phases of louding these rookies, right? Because at first, 
at first it was the tackles. It was Charles Cross and Abe Luke because it was, oh my God, they're starting two rookies like from the jump. Mm -hmm. This is crazy. And then those rookies held up and it's nuts. And then we moved on to the corners. Oh my God, Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant. They're actually potentially like cornerstones for the secondary of the future. And they're just generating turnovers at an insane pace when nobody else is. Turnovers! Turnovers! When was the last time we got turnovers? The Seahawks have had two, they've had multiple turnovers in six out of their seven games. It's beautiful. That's crazy. And now you have the Kenneth Walker emergence now that Penny's gone down and he's taken it and literally running with it. And it's insane. Insane. And it's like, it feels like each different phase of rookie praise is overshadowing the others. Like, Abraham Lucas and Charles Cross quietly have the top two highest pass block win rates among the rookie offensive tackles in the league. That's amazing because this was a highly, highly thought of class in, in terms of tackles and for them to be at or among the best of that is no light praise. You know, uh, it's crazy because any one of these guys popping off, you feel good about the draft, but this has like, 2010, 2011, 2012 level potential with this draft class. Like Schneider and Carroll were in their bag on this one. And, you know, I've been hard on those guys. And I think justifiably so. They just haven't added wins through the draft over the last five years. But, man, they have set themselves up really, really well. That's without even talking about all the money they have to spend to fill the gaps with some veteran leaders coming in. And, of course, the... I mean, they're they're killing their own draft value by winning these games. Thank God Denver is picking up the slack for us. I mean, Seattle's two first round and second round picks next year are going to be exactly where I expected them to be going into the season. <laughs> but for the opposite reason. <laughs> Just completely transposed, yeah. The fact that the Seahawks are potentially going to have a top five pick and it coming from Denver in the Russell Wilson trade is the most upside down storyline outcome that you could have possibly told me before this season. Like what was the, so. what was the floor or what was the highest that you would have expected that pick to be if, like 13? If everything, if everything went wrong, the way that I saw it going like worst case scenario, they're eight and nine and picking. Yeah. 13th, 15th, somewhere in there. Yep. Well, they got to go six and four to get to eight and nine. <laughs> and we might not even have to use one of them on a quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's the other thing. Like how much of that cap space are you willing to take up on Gino going into 2023? I'm not ready to answer that question. <laughs> I know yet, I'm man. not either. I got to see a little <laughs> bit more, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about not being able to answer that question yet. Totally. Uh, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, because this, this was kind of the overarching emotional response I had to the game was the DK Metcalf injury. Um, I obviously he's my favorite player in football. Uh, that's no secret to anyone who's been listening or reading over the last few years, but I truly do believe he's one of the most important players to this team in a lot of ways, not just because he's so damn good, but the way that other players look up to him, the leadership role he's taken on. Um, I mean, Bobby Wagner, who was the unquestioned leader, of this team for the last five years gave that mantle to DK Metcalf, you know, and Metcalf was shadowing Bobby Wagner, learning how to lead this team. And so when he went down and was immediately ruled out, 
I, like I'm sure many other Seahawks fans, was bracing myself for him to be out for the year. And now it's sounding a lot more encouraging. Like he's talking about how he wants to practice tomorrow. And it was just precautionary. Like they just didn't want to risk it. But it also speaks to the confidence that they had in Marquise Goodwin, whose story is incredible. I mean, you're talking about an Olympic caliber sprinter, and that's always the thought experiment, right? Like, what if you put Usain Bolt in the NFL? What if you put all these great sprinters in the NFL? And of course, it's like, it's not going to work out. There's just too much else you have to do to be good as wide receiver in the NFL. Marquise Goodwin went out there and just won. He just won. And he ended up with two touchdowns. And if DK does have to miss some time, you don't feel like the offense is going to collapse. You don't feel like Gino is going to be forced to funnel targets towards Tyler Lockett and the defense can just shift for that. Like it just feels really complete right now. Which is really weird because he's had one truly good year. In 2017 with the 49ers, he had 56 receptions on 105 targets um for 962 yards but the most yardage that he's had in any other year is 431 last year he had a little over 300 but that that almost thousand yard year was five years ago he's 31 and yet you look at how he played on sunday he was going up and getting it he was roasting guys he had and even on that uh even on that little screen that uh, oh, man. that Eskridge had the OPI on that it got called back. He was fucking flying, man. Like literally, if you had blinked at the time that he caught the pass, by the time your eyes reopened and refocused, he was 15 yards downfield. That would have been the first screen pass Seattle would have successfully executed in a decade. I know he's, he's the one. They almost the did truth. it. They, they, almost they were so close. Did it. They were so that's going to be that's going to be the final jewel in that's the crown the goal. That's for this offense. The last development infinity stone. is one successful screen pass. Yes, Marquise Goodwin <laughs> is the one, the harbinger of screens. <laughs> oh man! Well, the Seahawks are one of the most surprising teams in the NFL this season, without question. There is one team that is absolutely a bigger surprise than the Seahawks. And that is who they play this week. That's the New York Giants who come in at six and one. I think they've only outscored their opponents by like eight points, but they're six and one. And Seattle is favored over a six and one team by three points. If you were, and, and, and a three point favorite at home is essentially saying these two teams would be even on a neutral field. When you look at the Seahawks, you look at the Giants, do the Seahawks feel like a better team to you? They win in different ways, right? Because if you look, let's just lean on our good old friend DVOA here, right? So the the Giants are 14th in DVOA. They are 7th in offensive DVOA and 29th in defensive DVOA. And so you look at the numbers on offense, they're pretty similar. They're 8th in passing DVOA and 6th in rushing DVOA. But their bread and butter is the run game, right? Obviously, Saquon. Saquon's having a great year coming back. He's another year removed from that injury. Daniel Jones is not making the mistakes that he was, but his biggest weapon is his legs. They're running the ball like crazy. The Seahawks have three receivers. They have DK, Tyler, and Will Disley with more yardage than Richie James, who is the leading receiver for the Giants. The second leading receiver for the Giants 
Saquon Barkley. So it's not like they're moving the ball like crazy. That's why, I, you know, I'll be honest. I'm a little surprised by those rankings. I would have expected just looking at their the scores of their games. And I've watched a fair amount of Giants football. Been in primetime a couple of times. And, and, you know, just watching red zone, flipping back and forth between games. I would have assumed that they were a little bit more middle of the pack on offense and higher on defense. But what that tells me, you know, is that they're exploitable. And they've been down in just about every game, right? Like they have all of a sudden just, they stopped giving up points after the third quarter and they just seem to manufacture scoring drives. Like it's, it's crazy. They're out there running the wishbone, you know, and it's, and it's working. And so, you know, it is a credit to Daniel Jones who is having a Geno like resurgence, even though he has been starting this whole time, he was written off. I mean, he's a first round quarterback where his team didn't pick up his fifth year option. That is a really rare thing. And he's out there playing for his next contract and they keep winning games. I mean, it's going to be hard for them. First of all, they're not going to draft high enough to replace him. I don't think, I mean, at this point with six wins, their worst case scenario is probably nine wins at this point. So this is his team. And I think that does allow Brian Dayball and the rest of the coaching staff to kind of lean into building a system that works for Daniel Jones and they're doing it and it is working and it helps to have someone like Saquon Barkley, who is another running back that matters. And, and it's obvious seventh in offensive DVOA when, like you said, Richie James is your leading wide receiver. You're paid almost $90 million to Kenny Galladay and he's basically a healthy scratch. Who knows what side of the rabbit hole Kadarius Tony is on any given week. Now they got Wondale Robinson, who who I do think is a dynamic player. They'll have to watch for, but what Seattle will be preparing for this week, that is, I think, a lot different than most, if not all, of the other teams they've prepared for this year, is a really funneled offensive attack. Like Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley are going to have the ball in their hands at the end of the play 60% of the time. Yeah, and the the early returns at Seattle stopping that sort of attack were not great. <laughs> yeah, like we talked about Taysom Hill and Alvin Kamara. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. did not go all too swimmingly. But then, you know, like we said, with Kyler a couple of weeks ago, he had that big explosive that he ripped off on the first drive of the game and then not a whole lot. Yeah, you saw it, you saw it in the Falcons game too. They they took yep. a really similar approach yep. to what I expect the Giants to do, which is a very dynamic running attack. And and you and I have talked about this a fair amount on this show over the last year, but running doesn't have to be boring. You can run creatively and There are teams that have done it. The 49ers run extremely creatively and had a lot of success against Seattle. The Saints, like you mentioned, do that. Um, The Lions a little bit less so, but their offensive line is just so beastly that they can just kind of count on winning up front more often than not. What's going to be interesting with this game is Evan Neal, who was the number one rated offensive tackle for a lot of people coming out of college last year and was taking a few picks ahead of Charles Cross. He got hurt last week in Thankfully, it does not appear to be season ending, which at the time it looked like it might be, but he's probably not playing in this game. And I'll be very, very curious to see how the Giants can operate without him. Yeah, something that we need to start talking about is Daryl Taylor looking a little bit more like Daryl Taylor, right? He's got three sacks on the year, 
all strip sacks, two of which have come in the last two games. Yeah, and honestly, as long as you're not getting blown up on the rest of the plays, if you can make two splash plays as a defensive lineman in a game, you have had a good game. You know, we're we're so spoiled because there's so many talented edge rushers in the NFL right now that, you know, if you're not a Watt or a Bosa or a Miles Garrett or a Max Crosby or a Von Miller, you know, that's that's kind of what we're comparing defensive lineman performance to Aaron Donald for an interior player, JJ Watt. But like most defensive linemen earn a lot of money by being able to make one or two disruptive plays per game. And that's what Daryl Taylor is doing. Yes, we would love to see the consistency and the floor improve, and and maybe that can happen. But Daryl Taylor was drafted because he's a ceiling player, because he has the ability to disrupt offenses in the way that a lot of defensive linemen don't. And I can't think of a single player that has benefited more from just the simplified approach that Seattle's taken over the last two weeks than Daryl Taylor, because you, me, Half the guests we had on in the preseason all predicted him he as kind the of the breakout player on he this was defense. The pick across the board, totally. The other thing to keep in mind with uh, Neil out is that, as we mentioned, Seahawks have the NFL's leading generator of pressure. And I just want to—I want to go back to that for just a second before before we flip back Please. to the Giants. Uchetta Nwosu generated a career high eleven pressures this week against his former team. Are so you this fucking kidding me? Truly was. The Nwosu revenge game. Good for him. Man. Like, if your team gets 11 pressures, that's a good Justin game. Herbert was in hell. Yes, he was. Oh, man. That's incredible. Yeah, I'll be curious to see how tough they decide to make it on the new right tackle. I don't. I mean, I don't know who it is, but it's obviously not the guy they want out there. So, you know, one of the things that I love about Bill Belichick, and he's not the only coach who does this, but he's a coach who does it very famously is he will identify the weak spots on your team and he'll just hammer it relentlessly. You got a backup corner on there. That dude is seeing 16 targets that game. You have a backup offensive lineman. He is getting the fuck stunted out of him all game long. If you got a backup running back in there, you are going to see overload blitzes coming where you're forcing that guy to choose which dude he's going to pick up. And over time, the pressure cracks the pipe. I really, really hope that Clint Hurt and Sean Desai do that with the Giants this week. Which brings us, Mike, to our expectations for the rest of the season. And this season in particular has been a fun one for talking about this because we've had pretty set expectations going into the last eight years, nine years, where we expect 10-ish wins and competing for the division title and a playoff run, but also kind of understanding the team's probably not elite elite over the last four years. I don't think that they're elite elite, but they are trending in a very promising direction. So, you know, my prediction of at least six wins is looking very, very safe. I think you were kind of in a similar boat going in right now, looking at the schedule, looking at how the team's playing, knowing that they're four and three, They've got 10 games left to play. How many of those 10 games do you think they're winning? Are they winning six of them? <laughs> uh, they just throttled the Chargers. Yes. I'm going to say yes. Hey! I'm going to say yes. yes. I'll I say love yes. it. 
You're welcome. You know what's funny? The hottest take. You really had to. You really had to drag that one out of me, didn't you? <laughs> well, here's the thing: the over/under for the Seahawks total wins going into the season was five and a half, and I thought that was the exact right number. I think their over/under for the rest of the season is still five and a half. Like I think they're between five and six more wins, which in this NFC is probably the playoffs, and it could be the division. The thing that this hinges on, which is very, very important. The Seahawks have not played the Rams this year. And if Geno Smith proves capable of climbing that mountain and oh beating God. the Rams once or even twice, no. the statue, the statue, the statue was erected yesterday. I'm telling <laughs> Seriously, you, man. Man. no, for real. Like if Geno <laughs> breaks the fucking Rams curse, the, the ceiling is the floor, Re- dude. Re- Re- rename Occidental Avenue yes. if he beats the Rams twice. That's Geno Smith Boulevard at that point. But you're right. I mean, the the Rams are still the 800-pound gorilla as far as the Seahawks are concerned. I mean, they've just had no answer for Sean McVay since McVay took over the job. So let's talk about the NFC West really quickly. I mean, I think we're in accord that the Cardinals are kind of a disaster, although I do think DeAndre Hopkins changes things for them, sure. and we saw that on Thursday. Uh, but I, I can't imagine... Cliff Kingsbury is long for this world in the NFL. That Thursday, that that game was so weird also because what the game was tied and then suddenly Kyler hadn't touched the ball for two minutes and then he was up 28 14. Like that, right, that right. game back script back went right sixes. down the toilet. It, it, it was just a weird Thursday night football game. But the Saints also aren't very good. Sure. And, you know, I mean, they're two and five. So I, I don't think the Cardinals are a threat. I, I could be wrong, of course. We've we've seen them rip off a bunch of wins in a row over the last few years. It's always been at the beginning of the season before Call of Duty comes out. But, you know, we'll see if they can do it in the back half of the season. But I'm not really counting on them being a threat. The 49ers are fucking on tilt right now. They just traded a second-round pick, a third-round pick, a fourth-round pick, and a fifth-round pick for a running back who's been in the league for seven years. And don't get me wrong, I think Christian McCaffrey is absolutely a vital player in this league. He's super dynamic. There's no question they are a better team right now on the field with him than they were before. But that's not a move a team makes if they feel really good about the direction of their roster. Totally. But also, it feels like such a win-now move because they don't have yes. a first-round pick, a second-round pick, a third-round pick, or a fourth-round pick next year unless there's like a compensatory selection thrown in there somewhere. I think they have like five picks in the next two in the next two drafts, and I think only one of them is in the first two rounds. They really saw less Sneed and said, say less. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So let's talk about them now cuz I mean, don't get me wrong. I think I think the Niners finished with a winning record this year. They're 3 and 4. They're going to win at least 9 games. The Rams, what do you make of them? Uh I I've I'm always reluctant to talk about the Rams. I feel like speaking about them is like putting bad juju into the universe that's just going to jinx something so that's <laughs> the vi- the vibes are too too strong right now the vibes are too it. strong i don't want to sully them with ram speed no man do it the vibes can withstand it oh god okay well i mean what well, we want me to tell they, they suck shit jackson that's what i'll tell they you the do. rams fucking suck there you go yeah You're welcome. thank you someone had to say it <laughs> i had to say it once again you dragged feels it out good, of me right? it feels great it feel Fuck good? the rams man i have to Fuck i have rams. to throw that down yeah absolutely i mean here's the thing they're 
they're not going to play this poorly all season. They're going to figure some things out. But they are not as good of a roster as they were last year. And the thing to keep in mind is they had a stretch like this last season also where they went one and three. I think Matt Stafford had during that stretch had like seven turnovers. I think three of them were returned for touchdowns. That's exactly the Matt Stafford that we're seeing right now. Last year, it felt like, okay, it's because he was pressing. I mean, I I was watching those games and he just, he just was, I, I think that everything was going so well for them. He was getting away with everything with his no look passes, just throwing it up towards Cooper cup run game was working line was blocking. They were counting on the defense. It just felt like he was, he was just winging it a little bit right now. That same result is happening, but it's because the offense looks dysfunctional. They have no running game to speak of. They are the worst running team in the NFL, which is a crazy thing to say about a Sean McVay offense, because for all of the superlatives that you can apply to their passing numbers over the last five years, it's worked because they have been an elite running football team. And now it's Cooper cup or nothing. Well, another staple of their run of success over the last several years has been an offensive line that has been solid and anchored by Andrew Whitworth and also hit positive variance on injury luck every fucking year. Every so year. Andrew Whitworth retires. You got note boom in there. You got like Coleman Shelton filling in and everybody's hurt. Like Havenstein's getting murdered by Micah Parsons on one leg and everybody's going down and they can't run the ball. Their, their second round running back from a couple years ago wants to secede from the team. The vibes are not great in Los Angeles right now. Also for the Chargers, SoFi is just a ball of angst. And, you know, if Matt Stafford can get it together, if Allen Robinson can figure out where he fits on this team, Sean McVay remains the boy wonder, you know, like they won the Super Bowl last year, despite, despite how, um, don't want to say lucky, but they got pretty lucky in a couple of different ways. Yes, uh, they did. And and every Super Bowl champion does. every, Every does. Everyone does. Correct. But, um, I, I, I think that they're not as bad as they look right now, but I mean, on that offense, it's Cooper cup and everybody else. Yep. I will say Odell is coming back at some point and may take him a couple games to get up to speed. Did they sign him down the stretch last year? No, but they're keeping a locker open for him. Sure. He's, he's on the sidelines in blue and yellow at every, (laughs) at every home game. Like he's, texting Sean McVay like I am fully assuming that Odell Beckham Jr. is going to be a Ram for the final stretch of the season he's had to block like six different phone numbers from Green Bay just to stay in Los Angeles (laughs) oh man I absolutely I'm sure I'm sure Baltimore and Green Bay are uh pinging him and his reps but you know I, I think even even if the Niners and Rams and to a lesser degree Cardinals get it together, it's not like they're all just a tweak away from being great again. Like I expected the Rams and the 49ers to be two of the three best teams in the NFC this year. And they are not, they are not even close to it. 10 wins wins the division this year. Nine might, but 10 does Seahawks just go six and four and they're hosting a playoff game. Yep. That's as as friend of the show Stephen Ruiz said. I can't believe he called it, man. 
You remember you remember Danny O'Neill earlier this yep. season? It was it was calling, Steven and Danny. He was like, I don't know, calling nine wins for the team. And we were just like, Okay, it's cool to hear a <laughs> divergent opinion. Like oh, that's awesome. the profit. And the profit. Like, oh, oh, you mean these football experts who pay really close granular attention think that this team might be good? Eh, okay. Maybe there was something to that. Which brings me to the Mia Culpa part of this show. Do it. I have been very hard on Pete Carroll, Mike. Yes. Very hard on Pete Carroll. Yes. And while I will say, I'm on record as saying I think he's a good coach for handling the reload, the rebuild, whatever you want to call it, because he is a master curator of vibes. He's good at coaching up the young guys, getting them to buy in, all of that stuff. Whatever he's doing is fucking working. I mean, the guys are showing up ready to play championship game level football every week. It's coming together. His his hands are off the offense from everything that we've heard. He is trusting Shane Waldron, which is what we've always wanted, right? Let the offensive coach do the offensive coaching. And you, you stay at 20,000 feet in the air and make sure everything's working all right. He's a coach of the year candidate which is wild and I I can't help it, man. I, I have to reevaluate the way that I view Pete Carroll in terms of leading this team moving forward. Now, if the wheels fall off and they finish six and 11 or seven and 10 and the vibes aren't great at the end of the season, maybe I go back to where I was before, but as it stands right now, my confidence meter in Pete Carroll is super high. The highest it's been in a very long time. Consider yourself re-radicalized, brother. <laughs> okay, be honest. Be honest. How much has your opinion of Pete Carroll changed over the last 18 months? My opinion of Pete Carroll has not changed at all in the last 18 months. I've always thought God, the world that's... of him. But in terms of in terms of my confidence in his ability to reset the franchise and put it on the right track. Uh, to return to contention in a reasonable amount of time. Oh, dude, I did not expect this, right? Like he and Schneider have threaded the needle at every oh, single man. phase of this offseason. Like for real, like Schneider is probably a uh, a contender, if not the favorite for executive of the year. You look at the Russell Wilson trade, that in a vacuum is insane. And we still don't know where the capital is going to end up at for next year, but it's looking like a top five pick, a top they- five pick in the second round. If the next draft is even 70% of what this draft was, that's going down as one of the greatest transactions in the history of this franchise. Totally. And you look at Shelby Harris coming in, like I'm I'm not Shelby what, Harris. He's he's awesome. He's great. I'm not super high on Noah Fant so far. I mean, the potential's mm-hmm. there. I just want him to play above the rim a little bit more. But yes. Um that trade alone Obviously, at this point, I think we can say that it's incredible, right? I, I want the best for us after this season, but until then, it's working out very well. You sign Nwosu in free agency, right? All the rookies in the draft. You have five to six, like, true impact, like, starters, you know, like Boye Mafe is not yeah. technically starting, you know, right now, but, like, he's gotten some spot starts, and he's you know, uh, overcoming what was, you know, we had Deontay Lee on the show and his big concern was that was Boye Mafi can be able to play the run. And so far that's proving to be his strength on the field right now, you know? Yeah. So 
I did not expect this. I don't think that anybody could have expected this except for Danny O'Neill and Steven Ruiz. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. We'll have to have them back on. If, the, if things keep going the way that they're going, we got to have them back on to victory lap us because, I mean, I, I got to say, they had such a rosier outlook on this season than I did. And I was optimistic about the season. Yep. From a development standpoint, sure. Not from a wins and losses standpoint, and they're doing it all. I mean, the vibes are immaculate. They're rolling into a game that I think we all saw as one of the potential six wins going into yes. the season. Even if even at six and one, I'm expecting the Seahawks to win this game. And if that happens, if dare to dream, they're five and three with some impressive wins on their resume. I mean, all of a sudden, we're talking about a very, very different team in the back half of the season. The the question at that point is, the trade deadline soon cometh. Yep. The trade deadline is one week from today, Jackson. If the Seahawks win on Sunday and they're 5-3, and three, are you buying? Are you sticking with the roster that they have right now? How are you approaching that? So if you can go and get Brian Burns or Roquan Smith, you got to think hard about doing it. You're going to give the thing up two is, first rounders to do it. Probably going to be two first rounders. And I, we've seen that before. I mean, I have more confidence, I think now for them to make players like that fit better than they were able to make players like Jimmy Graham and Percy Harvin and Jamal Adams fit. But I kind of just want to see this through. I, I'm not sure I want to skip any steps. I'm with you. I, I kind of want to be a hold. Like I would love if you could get chase Claypool for, a third round pick or a Jerry Judy and you provide some depth and a real third threat in the passing game. I'd consider that, but I'm not trading a first for either of those guys. I I, I would say hold again. I don't, I don't want to skip steps. I don't want to take away development snaps, but if one first, if one of your two firsts next year gets you Roquan Smith or Brian Burns, you got to think pretty hard about doing it. I don't think that they will though. No, and and I'm I will be very 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 fine with that, and I don't even think we've got any of kind of the cast off older players to trade away, you know. I I think everything is just fitting right now. You've got a really good balance of veteran leadership and young studs, and and I think you roll with that. Yep. Hey man, Seahawks stock keeps trending up. Sure does, man. The star once again on the rise. Oh man. Oh man. Well, I think that's a great place for us to stop. The vibes are the best they've been in a long time around here. Those of you listening, really appreciate y'all joining us to talk about it. I love these episodes where Mike and I just get to rap about football. I mean, we are so incredibly fortunate to get the quality of guests that we do uh, on most of these shows. But I really, really love the episodes where it's just Mike and I. And uh, this is where we sign out for the day. As always, you can find us on social media. I am on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Mike is at, at Mike Barwin. And the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at, at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash Cigar Thoughts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like the show, Drop us a five-star rating. Leave us a quick review. That feedback means the world to us. The continued support you guys are showing for the show is amazing. We just hit our 100th five-star review. We did that in a year. That's crazy. Uh, please know that by doing that, 
as well as sharing this show on social media and with your friends means more to Mike and I than we can adequately express here. We will be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Uh